the way that I think of using my body in, as a psychotherapist is actually really paying a lot of attention to my own body as I'm working. Things that arise in me and then pay a lot of attention to things that are arising in the client that may lie underneath the story. You know, in TA, we have this idea of script as a narrative and, you know, we go back to an early scene that we can remember. Of course, all the time, there's a body accompanying that narrative. This is Three People in Your Head, a podcast about getting the best out of yourself and others. Co-hosted by Matt Taylor and myself, John Fleming. In this episode, we speak with Steph Oates, who is a teaching and supervising transactional analyst in the psychotherapy field and runs a psychotherapy and supervision practice in the northwest of England. She's Vice President of Research and Innovation for the International TA Association and an occasional guest editor of the Transactional Analysis Journal, as well as being an author of numerous articles. We speak about Eric Byrne's early work on intuition and protocol and Steph's interest in integrating TA with other theories, especially body psychotherapy. So welcome to the podcast, Steph. It's great to have you with us. So we might just start off with getting you to introduce yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, what your area of expertise is. Right. Well, um, thanks for inviting me to get involved. I've heard some of the ones that you've done before and really appreciated it. So uh, it's good to be here with you both. I live in the northwest of England, just south of Manchester in a very rural area. Trained originally as a teacher, but I was never very good at it. So um, I had to move on to other pastures near. <laughs> I was appalling at classroom discipline. So um, anyway, <laughs> then I did some social work. Oh, then very good. I started uh, doing a psychology degree, decided it would be a good idea to get my own therapy and uh, chanced upon a transactional analyst. Um, ah. I'd already heard of TA actually when I did my degree through the Open University. But then I found uh, my first therapist and been hooked for about 30 years. <laughs> Very so, good. 30 years and still as passionate about it as I was then, I think. Mm. It's exciting to be involved in a world that keeps me engaged and on my toes. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, is, I often think that TA is like uh, food for the soul. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So you work as a psychotherapist and a teaching and supervising transactional analyst? Yeah, I work as a psychotherapist. I have a small supervision practice because I closed it down a few years ago when I had some surgery and I've just been building it up again. And then I train peripatetically these days. I used to have a training program a long time ago. These days I rather like to just go and train when people ask me to and when. Yeah, great. Very good. I'm usually about a subject that I'm passionate about than, you know, the -the run-of-the-mill curriculum-based TA Yeah. And what sort of subjects are you passionate about? Yes. Well, alongside my TA training, no, actually, post-CTA, prior to my TSTA, I started training in body psychotherapy with various groups in Switzerland and in Paris. And then I set up a group of Four of us actually set up something called the Northern College for Body Psychotherapy. Oh, wow. We brought in a variety of trainers over 10 years. We brought in different body psychotherapists. Mm. And then we used, to, we used to really integrate TA with body psychotherapy in those days. And what was the drive to get involved in learning about body psychotherapy? Was there some stimulus there that got you interested? 
the drive, I think, was that I could never, I could never quite understand how to put into words some of those very early experiences that hook us. And particularly with clients, I think, clients who were wordless that I found very difficult in the early stages. And mm. uh, I can confess, I used to kind of get a bit pushy about getting them to add words to their experience and use those phrases that we used to use in those days. You know, you can think and feel at the same time, which rather horrifies me now. <laughs> but <laughs> how it was back then. Yeah. I met Bill Cornell at a training event in 1999 and saw how he worked and thought, whoa, there is more for me to learn. And I went about finding out how to learn it. Very good. Can I just ask, so for somebody who's just listening has never heard of body psychotherapy, can you give us a little idea of what body psychotherapy means or what it is? If only I could. Um, <laughs> well, in one sentence, Steph. No pressure, just one, one sentence, five just words. Roughly. <laughs> well, uh, I think probably the foundation of it was with a guy called Wilhelm Reich, who was also a psychoanalyst. What he was really interested in was how our body might armor itself. So he was interested in it as a theory of defenses okay. held in the body. So uh, he would do really quite vigorous work, very vigorous hands-on work. And the work was all about breaking down defenses. Okay. And was quite, you know, at times I think could be quite aggressive. And right. Okay. Yeah. And it's interesting there that you mentioned about hands-on because I know that from when I first started studying psychotherapy, I wasn't clear on what bodily psychotherapy was versus mm -hmm. touch therapy and you know where the line stops. So could you maybe help people understand a little bit more about how that gets divided up or understood? Or maybe it doesn't get divided up and understood as clearly as I would like it to, but... Uh, well, uh, I'm not so sure it should be that clear, really, because I'm not okay. sure that clear if I'm truthful. So I think Wilhelm Reich really was interested in paying attention to the body. And then it's been developed over and over again. There are lots of people that have followed him. There's a whole kind of you know family tree of mm -hmm. people that use the body and developed approaches to the body. What I see these days in all of the different trainers that we employed in the Northern College for Body Psychotherapy, is that all of them seem to be moving much more to a relational way of working. I hesitate to say that because I don't think it's relational. You know, I think relational is another term that's not simple and is more often misunderstood than it's understood. Um, yeah. But I think they, they're moving to a much more subtle way of working with the unconscious and what builds rather than coming in and breaking down defenses. Okay. The way that I think of using my body in, as a psychotherapist now or, or even as a supervisor or a trainer is actually really paying a lot of attention to my, my own body as I'm working. Okay. So things that arise in me and then pay a lot of attention to things that are arising in, in the client. Yes. That may lie underneath the story. So, you know, in TA, we have this idea of script as a narrative and, you know, we go back to an early scene that we can remember. Well, things that are, of course, all the time, there's a body accompanying that narrative. You know, I will watch for things like 
changes in voice tone or changes in skin color or changes in breathing and for different kind of movements. But I think, I think it's often misunderstood as body language or how people use their body or what we do to the body. But it's much more subtle than that. You know, like yeah. The ways that our body tell the story as well as our minds might tell the story and our words might tell the story. Mm, that's really helpful. I think I also sometimes get confused about whether in body psychotherapy, the therapist touches or makes physical contact with the client or not. Well, I think a lot of body psychotherapists have done and may still do. Certainly in those early days, a lot of it was hands-on. You know, Reich's patients would actually, I was thinking about UMAT actually, I think it might have been a bit more like physiotherapy. So mm. patients would lie on the couch with just their underwear on and he would be watching the, you know, the defenses in the body and then paying attention to breaking down those defenses. In my early days of training, it wasn't so much touch like a physiotherapist, but the client would be invited to be much more active. And, and there were various techniques. So we would encourage clients to beat cushions with a bat or push against somebody or actually yield to somebody else's body. But I don't think people do that quite so. Well, I don't do that so much anymore. Mm. Uh, I think people who've maybe been trained primarily in body psychotherapy might do it. But really, body psychotherapy for me was an adjunct to TA. TA, yeah. Which is a really good segue into how have you connected TA to body psychotherapy? How have you formed a relationship between the two? Well, in the beginning, you know, I've been running the two alongside for probably 20 years now. So in the beginning, I was very interested in how some of the body psychotherapists might have thought about character in the same way that we might think about personality adaptations or in a way that we might think about personality adaptations. So, you know, Reich had, I think it was five basic character defenses. Um, we have, I, don't, I can't remember how many personality adaptations we have now, but anyway, so Reich had these basic character defenses. So I used to always wanted to be marrying the two, you know. Okay. Is our schizoid like his schizoid? And is our hysteric like his hysteric? But it doesn't really work like that because, of course, nobody's completely a personality adaptation. Yeah. Any type. Um, but each adaptation has its own struggles, I think. So. I was really helped in the body psychotherapy training from, I was helped to shift from asking the question, what is wrong with this person, to asking the question like, what is this person struggling with in their defense system, which might be more bodily or more cognitive. So really, I've moved, I think, to using the two things alongside each other to make meaning and help the client make meaning. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I like the, the way you use the term characteristics, because often we talk about things like adaptations or like you say, we look for the problems or the difficulties, but you talked about characteristics, which I thought was interesting. I might have, I might have said characteristics or I might have just said character. I'm not sure whether I said characteristics. Ah, maybe I just missed it. I read that into it. But it's a lovely pickup, actually, because I think that's what it is. Like This is part of my character and this is characteristic. But there is part of the theory that is a character defense. So uh, yeah, the big shift is from defining somebody as something to making meaning of 
people's characteristic. I think that's, that's nice, actually. Mm. So it's moving from defining to making meaning, I think. Great. And how did you start to realize the difference in your practice then, Steph? Because obviously you continue training, so it must have been creating some sort of a shift for you in the way you were working. How did you begin to notice that in, in how your clients were responding or was it the success you were having? Yeah, well, uh, not always the success. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was thinking of one particular example. So when I first started training, what happened was that I slowed things right down. So I talked much less. I interpreted much less. I watched much more and I waited much more. When I say waited, I mean waited for something to emerge. And then I thought, oh, this is the way to do it, of course. But then one client, mm. what has happened to you? You're just sitting there like a butter. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So I suppose like any, any uh, additional training you do or methodologies or uh, you know, tools or interventions, it, it, it works for some clients and not for others. Is that what you're saying? That's one of my major, major passions in a way that we cannot get the client to fit the theory. Mm. Um, and our theory is you know, something that resources us, that can help us understand. But Yeah. You noted when we asked you, you know, about who you are for the forms that we have, which we do with all of our guests. You mentioned one of the things that you loved about TA was that it's a collaboration and the client is just as involved with what's going on and just as responsible about the changes. And I found that as a therapist, very liberating. So going from a hypnotherapy model or a mindfulness coach and I'm delivering, that's my goal. I'm delivering, you know, and trying to help and trying to give the tools. Whereas the TA, this kind of co-created thing, I think that is wonderful. Well, I think it's ultimately empowering. I think that was the first thing that enchanted me, actually, was my very first therapist. I said, will you be able to help me? Because I'd had various psychologists before that. And he said, yes, but you're going to have to make some changes. And I immediately thought, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm an active participant in this. I'm a yeah. recipient. So. Mm. It's interesting what happens when you're told that you're responsible for the progress that you make. I, I know for me that that was a real shift in my own therapeutic journey as well, you know, kind of being like, oh, yeah, this is up to me. Like, I need to put the work in. And how have you, because I know you mentioned uh, some of your early thoughts around how you were beginning to make sense of body psychotherapy in relation to TA. Has that moved on and progressed over time as then as well about making new connections or maybe even challenging some of the existing TA theory and wondering, okay, was that still relevant today? Does that make sense when I look at it from the context of the body? Yeah, very much so, actually. I think um, what I've discovered, actually, is that I, I am, I think I'm naturally the kind of person that, that prefers a bottom-up process rather than a top-down process. And you know, I've had a lot of therapy over my 30 years. And I think, oh, in some ways, I, I could go on forever creating more narratives and mm. possibly creating further script. So it's like I, I put a new show on the road, which is what Eric Byrne described. You know, then I make adaptations to my script. In some ways, the, the danger, I think, is that we can continually make over adaptations. So I think, okay, this is the way I am now. This is the way to be now. And oh, there's another way to be now. 
And actually, as I really started experiencing changes in in my own body or in my relationships, I started to think, oh, the way that I want to be or the opportunity that I want to afford to my clients is that they emerge from within themselves rather than adapt to a system from outside of themselves. Does that make sense to you? I think so. I'm just trying to fish around in my head and be like, I think I'm grasping it. Matt, were you going to say something? When you say from the bottom up, what does that mean? Okay. What I think is that the TA model, I think, is it's a model of ego, really. It's, mm. It develops probably from you know two onwards when we start developing our script. So then I think, oh, actually, there's quite a lot that's happened before that. Mm. One sense is is as much of the essence of me than what developed after that. So if I think about script developing, you know, from a time when we've got cognition and words, not necessarily that many words, but, you know, we've, we've got a way to symbolize and we've got a way to understand the world. And underneath that, there's a whole part of our existence that isn't really accounted for. Mm. But Eric Byrne wrote about, he wrote about protocol as the foundation of script. So this is what happens in the very, very earliest weeks, months of our life, or even in gestation, I imagine. Yeah. Okay, I'm getting what you mean by from the bottom up now. And now I'm thinking about some of the models in educational TA that I've really connected with, which is um, the cycle of development, and particularly with the stage becoming, which wasn't initially in the cycle of development, it was an addition. And it is in child development meant to represent the nine months of gestation. And for me in my own journey, that's been a really important part of understanding who I am, what makes me tick why my script is the way that I am. But you're right. Traditionally, script theory would have been from two or three, seven or whatever it is. So what you're saying is that you're trying to account, not trying, you are accounting for this bit that comes before that, which isn't about ego. It's about, you use the word essence. I think that's the way that I, I like to think about it. And of course, it's not just the essence of us. It's the essence of the culture into which we were born. And I was thinking about the educational TA because Giles has written a beautiful article on um, natality. Mm. He really writes about the coming into life. So that's what I'm meaning about the kind of bottom up. TA is incredibly attractive, I think, for people to make meaning of the world. When I first came to it, I thought, oh, my God, that's why I do that. Oh, that's why I do that. Yeah. (laughs) It's incredibly enlivening and it has limitations if, if we keep it just to script, I think, that we can really start to unfold what happened before then. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to probe you on one thing before we continue on this. You mentioned protocol a while ago that Eric Byrne had written about protocol. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and what that means? Well, he wrote about it in his earlier books and then he wrote about it in... I think 1972, actually, the What Do You Say After You Say Hello, actually, it's mentioned. He didn't write an awful lot about it, but he wrote about it as the foundation or the analge. I've never really understood that word. The analge before scripts. So it's really just what I've said. But the difficulty is that it's kind of unknowable. Mm. I wrote something about the ineffable quality of protocol monkeys. Unknowable. Mm. So then I think we have to feel it. 
So that's where I get really excited about Eric Burns' emphasis on phenomenology. We have four ways of diagnosing, you know, he talks about diagnosing ego states. Ego states, yeah. We've got the behavioral, the social, the historical, and the phenomenological. And uh, because it's such a difficult word to say, people forget it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So I often think that TA gets reduced to the social, behavioral, and historical. Ah. Well, in fact, Burns said until you have all four methods of diagnosing ego states, then you don't do it really. So we have to get a sense of people's felt sense as well as their narrative. The felt experience, yeah. Yeah, the lived experience. The lived experience. I think it's the felt experience too, but I don't think it's just about emotion. Mm. It's about the lived experience, which has often got to through an emotion or through feeling. Yeah. Or when I was saying the felt experience, I was also thinking about how I might feel it in my body. That it might be a sensation or or actually I want to use the word intuition. Like I might feel it in my gut. You know, I might be thinking, I have a gut feeling about this. Sorry, John, I I misinterpreted you there. Yeah, but I wasn't being clear because we use the word feel or felt without really being clear on what what are we feeling? (laughs) Is it an emotional feeling or a, a physical feeling? So, yeah. So, Steph, what I'm making sense of in in my head is that Eric Byrne was already onto something here in his early writings that he was, uh, I don't know if you want to use the phrase dropping hints or kind of alluding to something without maybe elaborating it on. And it seems like you have, or maybe he has elaborated on it quite extensively and I'm not aware of it, but it sounds like through your Bonnie psychotherapy training, you were able to make a greater sense of what he was referring to when he said protocol and when he was mentioning phenomenological diagnosis. Well, through my body psychotherapy training and also through a brilliant article that Bill Cornell and Mick Landesh wrote, they wrote an article about, they called it Impasse and Intimacy. It's a really fabulous article and profound for me because what they wrote about was that actually when a therapist and client might get into an impasse, you know, something stuck between them, then they work through that together within the lived experience. And they really contrasted working in the lived experience of the protocol with any process of redecision. That actually what happens is the protocol gets reorganized rather than redecided. So I live through something with someone and then things start to shift. So can I ask when you say that they work through the lived experience, what would that be like, say for a client who is you know, in that room? How does that work together? What would that experience be like? Well, without wanting to get too much onto another topic, if we bring the other topic might be enactment, so which I don't want to go into now because sure. we could set a whole podcast on that. What I'm thinking is that if I bring my whole self into the room with the client who brings their whole self into the room, then in a way I've got an openness to the kind of unconscious communication that the client is bringing and the client to me. So there's a kind of willingness to be open. Mm. Something emerges that gets lived through together. So I think about an example of a client where something happens, I miss a tune, the client gets angry. We don't then try to work it out in a, you know, what went wrong where. 
oh, we don't work it out in a transactional way, or we don't understand it through game theory or any of the other things that point to something. We live through understanding it together until something starts to emerge that brings meaning. The example I often give is that when I started to learn to ski, I couldn't learn it through books. I couldn't learn it through behavior. You know, I was in the beginner's class for 12 years. But the way that I learned to ski was where the skiing instructor suddenly noticed that I needed something different and I needed him to be more involved than other people might have needed. So, you know, he put his arms around my arms and his legs around my legs and his skis around my skis and he skied me down the mountain. So we lived it together in a kind of psychosomatic partnership and I was able to learn it in a sensory motor way. Mm. I'd skied like that after that. I only needed that one time, plus all the other 12 years of trying to learn it. <laughs> only needed that one time to be able to win the race that week. Yeah, that's really interesting because, and again, I don't want to go off on a mad tangent here now as well because we could and go in a different direction. But what gets stimulated in me when you say that is like, you could compare it to education in the sense of that there is different learning styles. So people are kinesthetic or they're linguistic or whatever it might be. And what I'm hearing is that there's a tad of a suggestion here that maybe in therapy, people like to receive therapy in different styles or different ways as well, and that they may respond to them in more quickly or more efficiently or whatever word you want to use, depending on the style that the therapist is, is delivering. Is, is that? Yeah. And they might be reached in different ways. Yeah. So if I think about the early clients who I was pushing to verbalize because I was uncomfortable with the silence, mm. I wouldn't do that now. I might speak to it myself. You know, I might say, I'm wondering what's happening in the silence, but without any expectation of them having to come back with anything, kind of wondering and watching and waiting uh, feel to rather than, you know, what are we going to do today? And when you say early clients, you're talking about clients that you believe there is um, work to do with early experiences in their life, pre-verbal, very early stage of life. I don't think it necessarily has to be necessarily from an early stage of their life. They might be thrown back into a place where they don't have so many words or so many thoughts. So I don't think it has to be a kind of explicit memory of an early scene or something that actually happened. But there's that vulnerability that we can play with to let something emerge to. to mm. Okay, yeah. So it doesn't mean that this is only approach for clients with pre-verbal or pre-birth trauma. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be trauma. Like it's, yeah. yeah okay. That's interesting. And I think a willingness to be there with the client in what they're experiencing and what you're experiencing in the moment without having to necessarily impose a meaning before it's ready to emerge. Mm. Yeah, because I can think about how frustrating it is when a client doesn't have words. Mm -mm. You know, I know that from my own practice and, and my own clients where I've had those situations, I know that they find it frustrating. I have my own experience of it personally as well. And I can understand and appreciate how there may be a desire on the client side to want to understand what happened or, or what went on and just really being lost for an explanation. So this seems like a really um, appropriate way to approach 
something that's quite delicate. Yes, and, and John, I think the same can happen the other way, actually, that, that people can come in with too many words and too many understandings or a, a more sophisticated understanding, and they might need help to soften down or given time to sit with themselves or sit with me. I'm thinking as well about how that sophisticatedness or the elaborate, you know, theorizing of an understanding of themselves could be a defense. Mm-hmm. You know, I definitely can attest to that being my personal experience. I love to figure things out, you know, and, and, and have a, a running theory about what's going on. And I've had 16, 17 years of therapy. And the early days, I used to jump around therapists because I was moving a lot. So mm. I moved around the UK and Ireland a lot. And I remember one therapist I went to, it was a few years before I started TA training, and she was an art therapist. I'd never done art therapy before, and I was doing it because I'd never done it before, you know, and I wasn't going to be able to go in with my elaborative explanation of, of what was going on. And she laughed in the first session and said, I can tell that you've had a lot of therapy. You know, you, you're what I call therapized. You're able to explain what's going on. But she said it's to the extent, actually, that it's become unhelpful. Yeah, I wasn't actually able to connect with myself. It was all up in my head thinking, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't feeling anything. So, yeah, it can work both ways. You're right. It's interesting. I think Eric Boehm is such an interesting guy. I'd love to have met him because I I think it seems to me from his early papers on intuition, you know, that actually he, he really had that capacity to sit with and wonder about. And then as the theory developed, to me it got... It got more concrete, I think. So I think the early part was much more mysterious, and then the later part was much more concrete. Mm. So you would see a lot of his work as being initiated from his intuition and then it becoming more cerebral. Well, I don't know that he ever did. As I say, I didn't actually meet him. But if you read in 2010, there was a DAJ that was celebrating his centenary or what have you. So... Um, one of his clients wrote an article, one of his ex-clients wrote an article about him. And it seems like as a, as a therapist, it seems like he was, much, he was much more available and attentive to the subtleties than some of the writings might indicate. So I think he must have been a fascinating mix. Yeah. Well, I think it was all with the headiness of, of San Francisco in the 1960s that people wanted freedom. They wanted they wanted a way out, really. And in some ways, I think, I think we've gone too much to finding a way out. And actually, we might need to find a way in, a way into ourselves. Uh, yeah, or a so way could, home. It sounds very cliche, kind of like uh, eat, pray, love or something. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I, I want to just go back a minute because you said a while ago that you've read some of Eric Byrne's early writings on intuition. What was it that Eric Byrne had to say about intuition, and why has that why has that interested you? You know, and how do, how is it that you connect the two protocol yeah. and intuition? I think it was fascinating, really, because in some of the early papers, I can't remember the theory exactly now, but he wrote about being able to interview soldiers and to decide what career path would be or their job in the army would be just from asking them three questions. I know what you're referring to now because it's in this book I'm reading about him. So he, he worked in the American Army Corps as a psychiatrist. And I think it was when they were being discharged and he was in a long line of doctors. So they got to spend 30 seconds with each doctor and he was the last boot. And he yeah. set him this task. He would ask them three questions, but before they answered them, he would decide what the answers were in his head. 
and he was making all these notes. So he actually essentially did a research study yeah. um, and he proved that intuition, according to himself, I don't think it was validated by a university or anything, but that intuition was valid and that it was possible because he started noticing that the answers he was getting from the soldiers were the ones he had decided he was going to get beforehand. And he only yeah. met them for 30 seconds. And that's why he was using his own phenomenology to really, you know, what's going on here. And then he starts to build an image of these people. And then he starts to test the image out with the facts. Yeah. Mm. So that makes sense. And that's how you connect it to the body psychotherapy, because it's about seeing what I use as the felt experience. You were saying the lived experiences. When you are with the client in the room, you're, you're using that. You're using your intuition to mm. understand the phenomenological aspect of what might be going on. That's fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have a way of teaching or explaining to your clients what intuition is and how to develop that? Have I asked another one of those questions? No, I'm just wondering. I, sometimes it takes me time to kind of work out what I think. Um, well, I'm not so sure that we develop it. I think we have it from the beginning and that we forget it. So it's, right. You know, that, that's my sense. Well, yeah. So we, we're almost taught to no longer listen to it and to focus on our thinking or our conceptualizing. That's my sense. So that's why I think it's hard to do over a podcast because I think when I'm teaching, you know, I often get people in, in triads and I think Eric Byrne might have done this. I think he had an intuition experiment where he would get people to sit for a long time and really get much more of a felt sense we're back there again <laughs> much more of a felt sense in what was going on with the other person mm. i remember doing an exercise when i was doing some counseling training and the exercise was to stand behind somebody and place your hand on their shoulder and they had to think of an experience that either made them angry sad or fearful and the person behind with a hand on the shoulder had to guess mm-hmm. and it was bizarre how accurate that was. I genuinely thought this isn't going to work, is it? And in my group that I work with, we got 100%. Everybody got the right answer. I was really surprised at how accurate it was. And it's interesting about thinking about whether it's intuition or not, because what I've recently been thinking about is like how much we communicate unconsciously. Mm. So if we could call it intuition, then we might just call it unconscious communication. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about a, I've written about this client actually, where I was watching her and have some very, very intense feelings. I had a kind of counter transformational response, which I thought, oh, this isn't very nice. You know, I started to feel a bit, started to feel a bit persecutory. And so that's not normally how you feel towards your clients. Why do you suddenly feel like, you know, torturing her? So then if I'm able to use that unconscious communication, and then I can bring it up and say, you seem like you're being tortured because that's kind of been processed through my body. And then she was able to say, I do. And then to give me a narrative of you know, what was behind the torture. So I don't know whether I would call that intuition or whether I would call that unconscious communication that I'm in a place to receive mm. and, and interpret. And give a trial interpretation, actually, not necessarily interpret. Mm. Yeah, that's a great example. And what seems always important with that is about trusting yourself in what's coming up. You know, I know that's definitely been a journey for me 
in my intuition is actually listening to it. I don't know how many times I've been in a situation where I've had a strong urge to say or do something and then the moment passes and I was like, oh, why didn't I do it? (laughs) You know, I even have that in learning experiences sometimes, you know, when somebody says, oh, uh, you know, what's the answer to this? You know, and I get a strong gut response. And then I just sit there and freeze up because I don't trust myself enough to to go with whatever is coming up. So there is a development in trusting. But I like what you've said about it's always there. It's about whether we're accessing it or not. And I think trusting is a really important thing because I think I think that's what I've learned is to stay with it. Like that uncomfortable feeling I didn't really like very much. I thought, God, Steph, why are you suddenly feeling like you want to torture somebody? That's not like you. But to feel it and then wait until I can speak to it with some dignity, because it wasn't sounding very dignified in my body, I can tell you so. But then to wait to speak to it with some dignity, such that it can bring meaning. You were saying a while ago about getting into yourself, I think, and I introduced the idea of coming home to yourself. Do you think it's in that process that the trust begins to be built or that you begin to gather trust? Trust in myself or trust? Trust in the intuition or the unconscious communication. Do you think the practitioner needs to have gone through that process first? Yeah. And I, I think actually all of us as clients and as practitioners, you know, need to give ourselves more time for most things, which, you know, somebody who's been diagnosed with ADD, that's a bit challenging sometimes. Actually, if I can then just slow myself right down, slow my breathing down and pay as much attention as possible to what's going on in the moment so that I'm not racing forward to, um, to provide an interpretation or provide the words. I think I've you know, spent a lot of my last 10 therapy years you know, teaching myself and then in the process teaching my clients to stay with my experience rather than to move away from my experience. So Steph, would you like to see more of a focus in transactional analysis on the inclusion of body work in training? What's your thoughts on that? Not so much on body work in training, but I think what I'd like to see more of is people looking beyond the script, so looking beneath the script. So I'd like to see more depth and more questioning of the theory. Yeah. You know, we had an international webinar a few weeks ago, and people were saying, oh, you know, maybe, maybe our theory needs to shift, like the theory needs to shift like Giles and Haley are doing in terms of climate change, but also maybe our theory needs to shift from being a more individualistic, individualistically determined theory. I want to get this for me. I want to get free of my script to really helping people make more meaning of Mm. their experience and more meaning of their lives. And again, from the bottom up rather than the top down is what I I think is more passionate. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that because on the panel discussion, Anna Chandy from India was saying that in India, there's definitely a drive now as a result of the pandemic to look more at collectivism again, which is where they had come from. And she felt like when they strayed away from collectivism, they were in no man's land because this individualistic approach never worked for their culture. Um, so it does look like we need to be looking more at what can I do for us as opposed to what can I do for me? 
Yes, yes. You know, and that actually leads me on to a nice little question. Is it kind of erupted out of Rosemary's podcast, which is the fact that Eric Byrne declared TA should not be political. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about whether you think TA should be political or not. Well, I don't think it cannot be. It's all around us. It's within us. I think when Eric Byrne was making those statements, there were a lot of sensitivities around. So things were of their time. And mm. uh, many of the models that we have in TA were of their time. And they needed dating. I think the other thing that I would want to see in training organizations and training institutes is more of a make them like a postmodern perspective. Like, this is not the truth. You, you are not three people in your head. Sorry to use that, but you know, it's not as yeah. concrete as that. It's dynamic. And, uh, yeah. and I think sometimes when we get these concretized models, trainees take them away as if. Yeah. All I am is a be strong. Absolutely, yeah. I really like the introduction of constructivism because it really knocks that right out of the park and says, well, nothing is anything, you know. Uh, It is only whatever you might think it is in that moment, and then that moment is gone. So, um. yeah. I love the way that in some of your answers you described neurodiversity. You talked about neurodiversity, and I'm a really strong believer that we use these labels to put people in boxes and to fit them into a little schema that we have. And, and we're all just on this huge continuum of different measures, but we so want to just tidy everything up when it's not the case. Like you say, the three ego states is just a model and a model is always inaccurate and not wholly the truth, but it's useful, but it's, it's not everything. Yeah. Well, you see, that's when we get stuck up here again in our heads. And we get attached to the the framework rather than, you know, maybe like you were saying, the more felt experience would help us integrate it in a more healthy way than just being thinking, oh, I'm being parent now. Oh, now I'm being adult. Oh, now I'm being child. (laughs) You know, it's not as simple as that. I love what you've called your podcasts. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not feeling critical. Oh yeah, no. Because I think that's that's the dynamic tension, really. Because of course, we'll grab people. Because we all have three people at least in our heads, so that will grab people. But well, yeah, we're being a bit provocative as well. I think you know, <laughs> intentionally provocative. I think I'm against anything being fixed, really, and anything being the truth. <laughs> yeah, I I completely agree that yeah. there is always our subjective view, and everybody sees the world slightly differently. And one of the challenges, and this is modern science, there is no way of measuring experiences yet. And so an experience is everything, really, when, you know, it's all about our experience. But that's the very problem, Matt. We don't need to measure it. That, the, no, the, yeah, the science the wants thing. to. Oh, I know, but that's <laughs> why science... Put out a table and put things in boxes. To, science needs to go. It's had its heyday. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it's only ever as it's accurate as they know now. You know, that's the thing. Like, you know, but science is always so certain. It's like, well, we know... But next year, it'll say, oh, actually, no, that was completely wrong. So So, that leads nicely on as well, Steph, to just asking you, you know, because obviously this is targeted at people who may know little or nothing about TA and it's their introduction to it and learning all about the different fields. What sort of common myths do you think exist about TA that you might like to debunk? 
I don't know if I'd put it on the questionnaire, but there is that lovely joke about Eric Byrne and Patrick Moore. Do you know it? No, I don't know. So Eric Byrne meets Patrick Moore on a on an aeroplane, and Patrick Moore says to Eric Byrne, "You know, uh, oh, I hear you're a transactional analyst. That's um, parent adult child, isn't it?" And Eric Byrne said, "Yes." And tell me a bit more about yourself. And Patrick Moore says, "Oh, I'm an astronomer." And Eric Byrne says, "Oh, yes, I know that. That's Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, isn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, there's so much more. There is. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's very funny. I haven't heard that before. I, I get a good giggle out of that. That's very good. Yeah, very appropriate. And why do you think that TA isn't so well known in the general public? That's another reason why I'm really glad you guys are doing what you're doing, by the way, because I don't think it is as well known as it should be. There are two thoughts I have about it. You know, one is that people like, CBT people, you know, put an awful lot of money into research that can be validated and outcome measurement. You know, I don't think we can really measure, just as you said, I don't think we can measure experience. And the other thing I think is that I think it did go through a phase of, you know, being a pop psychology where people really didn't take it as seriously as they might do. And what I think is that it has an enormous breadth and an enormous depth. And I think it can be pummeled and I've been making bread this afternoon. So I think it can be pummeled and kneaded and pulled and stretched and still hold its shape. So I think it's a fantastic theory for that. I don't know if I've answered your question about what Yeah, no, you have. Yeah. And I agree because it is unique TA as well, which is the other thing about it and the fact that, that it has four distinct fields of application. And that it's a social psychology because some modalities that are primarily therapeutic based are very much focused on the individual. And I know that when I've taught my clients TA or I've run some personal development courses in the past, the thing that people have always enjoyed is being able to understand the dynamic that goes on between them and other people. And that's what got me attracted to it as well. When I started about transactions, I was like, oh my God, this is so helpful. So... Steph, just before we finish up, are you working on any exciting projects at the moment? Well, I'm uh, Vice President of Research and Innovation of the ITAA, so um, that keeps me as busy as my private practice. Yeah, it's very dear to me, the international community, so I really like promoting the journal that we have. So what is it about the TAJ that you think is so special? What is its value? It's a peer-reviewed journal, so it's got a really strong academic base. So I think it helps us get more known in the world of academia. I love that it's four fields, but unfortunately, we don't seem to be able to get many counsellors to write for us. So, you know, we need to broaden it out to counsellors. I really want to influence the journal to have its academic credentials and to have articles that aren't beyond the reach of people not wanting to delve into that level of intellectual rigor or something like that. Yeah, great. That's the balance I'm wanting to get. You know, people like Giles. People like Giles are such brilliant writers and Bill, actually. Well, thank you so much, Steph. It's been a pleasure. If people are interested in making contact with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? By email. Great, perfect. And we can put your email in the show notes. You'll be able to get Steph's email there if you do want to make contact. And it's an L, it's LC fan, not IC fan. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I've learned a lot. Yeah, it's been really valuable. 
As always, if you found anything in today's episode interesting, please feel free to reach out. If you would like some more information on TA or you'd like to see some TA resources, then head over to our website, transactionalanalysispodcast.com. You can also connect with us on all major platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also email us at threepeopleinyourhead at gmail.com using the number three rather than the word. And if you haven't already, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and we would be really grateful if you could leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Thank you.